Welcome to the second Lloyd's Register and PetraSpot discussion, which is titled Beyond IMO 2020, COVID, Credit Lines and Coming to Terms with a New Bunker Supply Landscape. Taking part in the discussion today are Mads Bjornby, Manager, Banker Services with TK Shipping, Beth Bradley, who's a partner in the shipping team at Hill Dickinson, Cowan Lee, Global Marine Fuels Marketing Manager with ExxonMobil, Lars Robert Pedersen, Deputy Secretary General with BIMCO, and finally Douglas Raitt, Global Phobas Manager with Lloyd's Register. The first Lloyd's Register Petrospot webinar was held in Q4 2019. We asked the question, is shipping ready for 2020? We discussed the very low sulfur fuel oils that were just becoming commercially available and considered issues of fuel quality, compatibility and the likely availability of all fuel grades. At the time, I think the consensus was that shipping and the marine fuel sector were pretty well prepared for the IMO 2020 transition, with perhaps some question marks over price spikes and volatility immediately after the 1st of January 2020, a possible short-term hiatus over fuel availability and some uncertainties over the level of compliance with the new regulations. Little did we know the extent of the challenges to be faced in 2020. Today's webinar was intended to look at how the 0.5 sulphur transition was actually playing out. But of course, the landscape for shipping has changed dramatically, and perhaps for some sectors irrevocably, because of COVID-19 and its impact on firstly global health and also on global and national economies. Oil prices have plummeted, Port and vessel operations have been disrupted, and there are very real fears of a global recession. Given that the global trade is in a state of flux and the COVID pandemic is still raging, this discussion has, of course, to address the impact of the virus on the sector. Shipping is, after all, keeping global trade on the move, but it is doing so under very difficult circumstances. So bearing the current situation in mind, let's start the discussion by considering what can usefully be said about how shipping and the marine fuel sector have adapted to the new sulphur cap in Q1 2020 in terms of fuel availability, fuel quality and supply chain logistics. How has fuel availability played out? Have we seen restrictions in choice at some of the smaller ports relating to HSFO supply, for example? And ahead of the coronavirus, had availability been improving in the early part of the year and moving on? Is the pandemic currently affecting fuel supplies? Uh, Cowan, perhaps I can ask you to take up these points to start the discussion. Certainly, Leslie. So if we look back at the preparations for sulfur cap, it has shown us what the marine fuel sector can achieve when we all work together, from production, storage, delivery logistics, and in some countries, issuing information on availability, helping customers make those decisions they need ahead of time. And all of these are supporting a fairly smooth transition. But COVID-19 is ripping through in phases around the world and causing massive disruption. We in the oil industry are not exempted either. The supply chain may need to unwind the plans for 2020, and refiners may need to reconfigure to bridge the gap between supply and demand. At ExxonMobil, we continue to do our part to support the response to the pandemic. We are also taking steps and revising our plans to address the downturn in our industry. I cannot speak on behalf of the rest of the suppliers operating objectives are different, but we look to continue our operations globally and taking actions to minimize inefficiencies while working closely with our customers in supplying marine fuels that they need. 
with the weaker demand, we have seen a lot of our customers going into survival mode, but many still need the fuels and technical service. And I'm pleased to mention that at all our marine fuels locations, we continue to operate to meet these steady demands. Okay, and I wonder maybe um, I can bring in Douglas here at this point and just ask Douglas, are you seeing sufficient avails of both high and low sulfur fuels at you know, the key bunker hubs and also at the smaller, maybe second tier ports? Uh, thank you, Leslie, for the question. Uh, firstly, I would like to just start with an overriding statement that in many ways, 2020 has turned out to be a little bit of a storm in a teacup. And actually, the negative sentiment that kind of existed on the run-up to 2020, escalating bunker prices, poor quality fuel, poor availability, by and large, has not happened. And in most of the bunker ports, there was sufficient availability of low sulfur fuel oil, high sulfur fuel oil. Uh, Fuel quality, by and large, turned out to be not so much of an issue as was anticipated. Many of the LSFO fuels are good quality fuels and need uh, proper care on board ship. And as long as the ship and crew know how to manage the fuels, there has not really been a major spike of, um, of poor quality related incidents. When it comes to the fuel oil non-availability, I would like to really not make a statement on was there in certain ports no fuel available. I think the actual reported cases of ships having reported fuel oil uh, non-availability reports to flag states and port state control would suggest that fuel oil non-availability was largely not a major issue that we experienced in the first quarter of this year. Okay. And Mads, from your perspective at TK, how is the company bound availability on the routes that it flies. Thanks, Leslie. Yes, we contracted up uh, some of our volume in our larger ports for Q4 last year and uh, into Q1 this year. And that really secured us a considerable portion of our supply, probably in the region of of 60% of our volume was was contracted out. We didn't see any huge availability issues, like probably many others, maybe in the spot market towards the end of Q4, especially in ports like Singapore uh, and well into the new year. But for us, with our contracts and also on the spot market, we haven't found too many issues What we did see was maybe some regions of the world, such as some parts of South America uh, and the Caribbean, were quite late to the game, as it were, with their VLSFO supplies. Um, But they've all got supplies now. So it looks like it's generally been fine. Okay, And just maybe picking up on the point um, of supply chain logistics, I think at the start of the year, there were reports of issues with large availability and berthing congestion, notably maybe at Singapore and Fujara. And indeed, it was suggested that this kind of logjam did cause the temporary spike in MGO prices above VLSFO in some ports. Were those issues widespread or localised and have they largely been resolved? I mean, judging by what you all have said so far, it looks as those early teething troubles have been sorted out. Is that something you would agree with, Lars Robert? It's true. Uh, Initially, we did see uh, reportings of waiting, extended waiting times uh, in, in some bunker ports. Barges were not readily available when the ships needed the the bunkers. But we have to remember that the transition actually caused two things. Uh, One thing was to introduce a new source of fuel in the market, basically requiring more barges because you had more different fuel grades. Uh, But also in the transition, you suddenly needed to stock up the whole world fleet to 
kind of a what you say initial stock. Then this is not it was not in in, in the initial uh, months or, or so really reflective of the consumption of fuel, more a restocking of fuel. So there was excessive. You could say demand for fuel uh, is probably the right word to use here in the initial phase. Whereas when you get into the the second bunkering, so to speak, it's more a reflective of the actual consumption in the fleet, and that actually brought demand to the normal level. And I think that's also a, what we see now with these extended waiting times and a possible congestion actually more or less diminishing or disappearing. We have not heard a lot about that lately. Douglas, is that something that you would concur with Lars Roberts' view on this? Yeah, I would suggest so. I remember in the last quarter of 2019, there was indeed talk about, okay, these low sulfur fuel oils can't be blended and can't be mixed. Therefore, we need to have much more careful fuel segregation policies in place and therefore a larger fleet of barges to accommodate that and i would uh, certainly concur with this notion that um, when the industry was stocking up for the um, 1st of january it will probably have created an additional demand that now more or less has been searched through the supply chain and now what we're witnessing is just business as usual and real demand uh, meeting real supply so um, yeah i would concur with that notion okay We've seen significant price volatility, um, you know, across Q1, not necessarily predicated on the introduction of the 0.5 sulfur regulation. And there is still, you know, there's still quite a narrow spread between VLSFO and gas oil. So I'm just wondering whether owners and operators are being tempted to stick with the known familiar gas oil and its properties, or has there really been a significant switch to VLSFO? And are we seeing any regional variation in demand ratios? Perhaps Cowan, you'd like to uh, to pick up on this one? Sure, Leslie. Um, this isn't really my area of expertise, but what I can say and share is we see customers in the ARA regions buying ExxonMobil premium HDME 50 and MGO, and it's a vessel by vessel decision. And this is based on numerous factors with price being one, but not the only one. So some choosers MGO only and have overcome some of the technical challenges such as lower viscosity and lower lubricity in the fuel. And what I understand is the majority have chosen to take the very low sulfur fuel oil option, which indeed can involve blending of components, which if done well and tested to be fit for use, should have no problems. And um, perhaps, Douglas, would you like to comment on that? You know, where's the appetite going for the low sulfur fuels? I would suggest that um, this was probably more a topic that would be more prevalent to discuss last year. I think now the shipping community has really embraced the use of VLSFOs mm -hmm. and the experience that we've gained from that as an industry would suggest that the use of VLSFOs considering careful fuel management is actually not that challenging. So this notion that gas oil would be a preferred fuel over a VLSFO because it's a known entity, I do not believe at this stage that is still a valid conclusion or statement to make owing to the fact that the shipping industry has um, gotten a lot of experience now in the last four to five months using VLSFO products. Could, could I shoot in a comment here, yeah. which I find actually... Um, probably reflective of, of what we're discussing. That was the fact that, in especially in Singapore, we saw very initially on a pr 
price difference where VL SFO actually exceeded gas oil in price uh, actually for some time. And the only way I can interpret that is that the ship owners, the fuel buyers, they were really wanting to buy the VL uh, SFO rather than gas oil, because from a logical perspective, that should never take place, actually, to have higher blended fuel prices than the clean product. And, and I think it just reflects that everyone in the industry is so used to use a blended product, a residual-based product, and, and are actually not truly comfortable with, with operating on extended times on a clean product. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I really think all the talk about operating on gas oil was probably more talk than reality. And what we have seen is that people moved into the VLSFO very, very early on. And uh, I think the, the volumes are also clearly reflective of that. Okay. And maybe we can move the discussion on to fuel quality and more specifically that pertaining to VLSFOs. Um, but, but firstly, I just wondered, are we actually seeing many straight run VLSFOs in the market or is it principally blended products? Douglas, what are you seeing? I would say, uh, judging by the fairly large viscosity ranges that VLSFO quality um, currently exhibits from as low as 10 CST to as high as um, 380 CST, I would suggest most of it will still be a blended form of fuel uh, that's blended specifically to meet the 0.5% global target. Although there are uh, some niche areas, no doubt, where there is some straight run low sulfur product naturally available. But I would suggest that the majority of the market will be supplied through the use of uh, blended fuels. And I think also to add to that, it also kind of uh, links to the availability challenge discussion that we had last year, where everybody was uh, pretty much afraid that there would not be enough product available. But the fact is that the supply chain has been extremely resilient and has found ways to supply the market with adequate 0.5% sulfur fuel. And I would suggest that is predominantly due to blended uh, fuel formulations. Okay, and, and Douglas, you picked up that point about viscosity. So as we begin to look at, at fuel quality, um, obviously issues such as poor points and compatibility and stability uh, were flagged up as possible points for concern ahead of 2020 about these new fuels. And I certainly very much think that in late 2019, looking at the fuels that were becoming commercially available, uh, the fuel testing agencies did seem to suggest that the fuel quality was looking to be good. What are we seeing now with the fuels that were, you know, are very much in the market now in Q1? Um, I would suggest uh, that VLSFO is by and large a very good product. And I would say ship operators do get a good bang for their buck using VLSFO. The challenges with VLSFOs, I think, are predominantly centered around the fact that the composition of the fuel is changing. So a lot of the fuels tend to have paraffinic contents or paraffinic in nature, leading to higher cold flow properties, which has a knock-on effect on fuel management. I think in the lower viscosity segment, you have the challenge that if the cold flow properties are poor and you also have a low viscosity, you'd probably have a challenge with fuel transfer temperatures as well as injection temperatures to contend with. And then finally, the challenge that we have seen is not so much the physical properties of the product itself, but some of the blending we have seen through forensic analysis 
some unusual components being blended in the fuel which may have an adverse effect for engine machinery operations. Okay, could you expand on that a little bit more, what you were seeing that perhaps you were quite surprised to find? Well, for example, uh, we see a lot of fuels with uh, DCPD, styrene, Mm -hmm. and um, other components that naturally are not found in huge quantities in the fuel. And in fact, some of these do belong to the typical cutter stocks we have in the market, However, we've seen them at levels where it would suggest that there is an element of active blending that is not necessarily in line with Section 5 of ISO 8217 that governs the extraneous materials in in fuel. Mm -hmm. Perhaps, Mark, could I bring you in here? What are you seeing in terms of the the quality of the low-sulfur fuels that, uh, that you're using? Generally, I I would agree that that the quality is pretty decent. We've seen a few vessels that have had some sludging issues, even when the TSP hasn't been uh, high or off spec at all. So that's one issue. And I think from what I've spoken to um, other people in the market, that seems to be a problem that others have found as well. Obviously, sulfur, that's uh, always a challenge, especially when it's been brought down to quite a low level at uh, 0.50. Um, But generally, yeah, the quality has been pretty decent, so we don't have any major concerns. But some of the waxing, um, because of the paraffinic nature of the fuels, that can be a bit of a concern, which is something that we didn't really see back in the days with uh, 3.5% HSFO. And maybe just look a little bit at uh, off-spec fuels. Obviously, you know, all the fuel testing agencies are coming out with their Q1 stats. And by and large, the reasons for off-spec fuels are obviously, or to be expected, sulfur content, sediment. And and I think we're also seeing the presence of water in some of the the samples tested. And I just wondered, in terms of why we're getting off-spec fuels, are suppliers still blending very, very close to that 0.5 limit Or are we seeing that they're becoming um, more used to blending these fuels? Perhaps, Cowan, would you like to comment on that? I think the point here is consumers will need to continue to be vigilant regarding the source of the fuel, who they buy the fuels from, and work with quality suppliers to minimize all the stability and compatibility issues. In other words, I think they should ask, you know, they will be buying, and if a supplier can't tell them, they should be wary. And they should be buying to the latest ISO 8217-2017 specs as well as ensuring all the guidelines with regards to storage, treatment and handling and making of fuels uh, are all handled very clearly and carefully. Okay. And Douglas, uh, what are you finding? Are you seeing that suppliers and blenders are becoming you know, more practiced at bringing these fuels well in below the 0.5 limit? Yeah, I think the challenge is, and I think we need to just understand the premise of how the market works. You know, good suppliers and healthy suppliers blend to the limit because the margins are made by smart and sophisticated blending as close to the limit as possible. I think what we have found as Alardo, and we see quite a lot of BDN bunker delivery notes coming with samples, where we see sulfur content recorded as 0.49 or 0.48. And that raises suspicion because for a supplier to be 95% confident that he will deliver compliant fuel, they will have to have a sulfur content limit of less than 0.47. So their target should be 0.47 so that any fuel delivered will, with a 95% confidence limit, 
uh, be able to be considered meeting the specification. And I think in the beginning of uh, the transition into 2020, I did see a lot of suppliers in particular not really taking that view on board. But from my understanding, and it also bears out the general statistics as well of off-spec sulfur content, suppliers do understand the tolerance limits of tests and do take these into account uh, when blending their fuel formulations. And looking at fuel quality, obviously it's the task of the blender, the supplier, um, but it's also a question of how that fuel is handled once it gets on board. And in the run-up to 2020, I think some owners and operators uh, undertook some pretty intensive tank cleaning. Others perhaps used additives. And some owners just said, you know, we're going to put VLSFO straight into the tanks. I just wonder, has there been a wrong or right strategy on this? Or are we still seeing that, you know, maybe evolving a situation not quite clear about whether that, that was the right thing to do or not? Um, Lars, Robert, is there anything you'd like to say on this? I, I think the the number of of cases uh, when we just saw from Singapore very recently that they have had very very few cases of ships being found to be in non-compliance uh, is indicative that whatever the strategy was um, for each ship it probably doesn't really matter mm-hmm. and i think it's also reflective of whatever the strategy really was over time uh, that will be equaled out all the ships will be clean uh, it might have been an issue for the first bunkering but the second bunkering far less and, and so forth. We are now several months into to the new uh, era of using low sulfur fuels, the 0.5% fuels, and, and whatever difference the different strategies made initially, those are not there anymore. Perhaps coming forward a little bit then from actually the, the 2020 tipping points and moving forward to the introduction of the fuel or carriage ban at the start of March. I just wondered, did we see more debunkerings ahead of this? And did we find um, that there were enough ports that do allow debunkering? Mads, perhaps you'd like to comment on this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was definitely a spike in uh, debunkering activity during February. Um, and there was probably also a little bit towards the end of last year. So it definitely was a factor. Um, I think the the difficult thing that we saw when making inquiries about debunkering was there were so many inquiries to suppliers and obviously suppliers would need to put this debunkered product into you know an empty tank on their barge or, or their tanker uh, and then have to see if they could blend that with existing fuels etc so it was quite a logistics operation for suppliers and a lot of them just couldn't do um, that many debunkerings just because of the logistics constraints and of course they were selling VLSFO and uh, and they were happy to do that so that's how we saw it but it was possible to get debunkered before the carriage ban came into effect uh, so I don't think there should be too many um, excuses for not having gotten it done. That kind of leads on to the next question, really, that um, are we seeing many debunkerings because the sulfur content exceeds the 0.5 limit? And do you perhaps think that might be coming uh, a larger issue for the industry? And if so, do you think there's a possibility we could see more onboard blending to deal with the sulfur limit um, instead of the recourse of a, obviously what is a very costly process to debunker? Lars Roberts, would you like to offer some perspectives on that about debunkering? 
Well, first of all, we we don't really have access to the statistics to to uh, to say where we really are at the moment. But what we can say about blending for sulfur, uh, it actually poses a number of of issues. First of all, you have a regulatory requirement to have a bunker delivery node with a compliant uh, sulfur level for the fuel you use. So if you have something that is off spec, you could say obviously if it's bunkered as a compliant fuel you would have a bunker delivery node to state that it's compliant so you would have that in place and there should be at least some leeway for blending you into uh, also or you could say operational compliance here still our recommendations on this and we we did post recommendations uh, on our website to members on on how to deal with blending because we heard from suppliers especially leading up to the uh, carriage ban that they actually thought blending of non-compliant fuel on board also in terms of non-compliant bdns uh, could be done and and what we said is hey guys you need really to talk to your flag state to see the limit of what you can do in terms of blending because you need a compliant bunker delivery node and you cannot as a ship issue a bunker delivery node to yourself because you are not the bunker supplier so that would require the bunker supplier to come on board there's nothing in the regulation really preventing you from physically doing the blending on board but the bunker supplier have to do it and have to issue the ship with a compliant bunker delivery node post that uh, operation so, so there are a number of complications involved with this uh, and it seems rather cumbersome to do and you definitely need your facts state in all to ensure you are within the regulation okay and perhaps beth i can bring you in here ahead of 2020 a lot of people were saying we're going to see a spike in bunker claims you know in q1 q2 i just wondered has this been borne out in practice and are those claims uh, largely related to bunker quality issues Thanks, Leslie. The good news is that there hasn't really been a, a huge spike in bunker claims um, arising out of the change in the regulation in the early part of this year. I think it feeds into everything that has been said so far, that there has been a tremendously high level of compliance and the the supply is largely very, very stable. And there haven't been any of the problems that were canvassed towards the end of last year. Where there are or have been bunker claims, it is largely quality issues. I think both for sulfur, but also in relation to some of the sediment issues that have cropped up with some of the low sulfur fuels. And unfortunately, where there is a big problem with the fuel that has been supplied, rather than seeing a lot more cooperation from the supplier or the charter, if they've been involved in obtaining the supply, uh, we're still stuck in the kind of usual litigation standoff over quality issues, where there are many, many, many tests of various different samples taken. Um, and everybody objects to the various tests that have been done and the various samples and the way that the methodology has been applied for taking the samples. And so you end up still with that kind of Mexican standoff. The charters will say, well, it's, you know, if there's a problem with the sulfur content of this fuel, well, owners, that's your problem to deal with from a MARPOL perspective. And until we have the MARPOL sample tested and Port State Control confirms that there is a, a problem with the sulfur content, none of the indemnities under the charter party are engaged and we won't assist with any debunkering. You know, and that is quite unfortunate because it takes a dispute or, or, 
or something that ought to be relatively straightforward to resolve and blows it into you know quite a large and expensive dispute. And obviously, Beth, you picked up on that point that um, you've seen compliance with regulation has been pretty good. Um, so we can move the discussion forward to enforcement of the regulation. And I just wondered how people um, around this table are thinking or viewing the application of enforcement, given the restrictions on port state control inspections during the, the COVID outbreak. Beth, do you want to pick up on that? Are you, are you, are you seeing enforcement being applied or are restrictions maybe a little bit you know, laxer or looser during this period? I think I was always expecting for there to be some time for uh, all ports to get uh, up to speed on enforcement. And I think there was always going to be a bit of a time lag in terms of being confident that all port state controls were enforcing the, the regulation. We haven't had anything like enough time to be confident that that has happened. Uh, you know, we're only four months in. And from the end of January onwards, various ports were starting to come under pressure, particularly in Asia, as a result of COVID. My instinct, and I think certainly in terms of the marine press, it seems to be widely felt that owing to the pressures now in most countries in, and in most ports, that enforcement of the IMO 2020 regulation has dropped somewhere down the list of priorities. And, and I think that ought to be expected and recognised that the ports are dealing with very, very difficult situations at the moment, particularly in terms of crew health and care and, and their own staff health and care, that that ought to take priority over checking fuel compliance. So impressionistically, I think it's dropped down the list of priorities in most countries. Uh, the UK has itself, and I think it's still the only one, the MCA has been the only country to actually come out and say, we will not be enforcing this as a priority. We will check if we think there's a reason to be suspicious that uh, the fuel regulation is not being complied with, but we will not be performing routine checks. And I think tacitly, many other uh, countries uh, are adopting that approach too. Perhaps I can come to Lars, Robert and to Douglas on this issue, whether what you're seeing in terms of enforcement and are you seeing a little bit of more of a, a light-handed approach during the current situation? Perhaps, Douglas, do you want to go first on this one? Um, it's interesting you should ask that, uh, Leslie. Um, recently, um, the MPA has come out with their statistics and they did 326 um uh, inspections from January up all the way up to the end of March and found 12 ships mildly non-compliant and two ships w got detained. Now, from that information, it would suggest that the Singapore inspection routine has still been quite rigorous all the way up to the end of March. Uh, but I would want to um, suggest that Beth's uh, comment now COVID-19 has a bigger bite into operations that that might have a slight impact on how rigorous that uh, inspection regime will continue. For Europe, I know that the stats from EMSA, I think in January they did 1400 plus inspections on sulfur. And anecdotally, it's been suggested that that's now roughly about a thousand a month. I'm not so sure how true that, that particular data is, but it shows that inspection was been taken seriously at the beginning of 2020, but for sure, uh, COVID-19 might very well have an impact on um, the enthusiasm and the rigorousness of inspections uh, at, well, at least at the current moment. 
Mm-hmm. And, and Lars, what are you seeing? What are ship owners telling you about the level of inspections? Well, there's no doubt inspections has almost uh, dropped off. They're not happening at the moment, uh, almost anywhere in the world. Um, So there's no doubt that you could say the enforcement from port states is absent at the moment, not only on this, but on on anything, basically. Uh, So it's all left to the flag state to ensure this, and it's left to the ship owners and the ship operators to be compliant I think there are several factors that uh, that comes into play here, and one of them is the uh, the risk of being caught. Uh, the other thing is the you could say the reward you could gain from utilizing uh, or exploiting such a an absence of enforcement in the current situation. And I think the price drop, especially on the differentials uh, between high sulfur and the VLSFO, have uh, you know come down markedly. Uh, there is very very little to be potentially gained from being non-compliant. And the other thing is also that many states around the world actually look at, uh, what should we say, uh, harsh actually at somebody taking advantage of the situation under the COVID-19 for making gains uh, in this. Several countries actually double uh, penalties for this reason. And and I just think, uh, quite frankly, uh, there's nothing really to be gained uh, at the moment and the risk is very high and and, uh, people are generally compliant. Mm -hmm. That's what we see. Okay. And maybe sort of why we're looking at it, um, compliance enforcement, have a quick look at um, the use of phonars. I just wonder, is more clarity emerging on the use of fuel non-availability reports? And is it proving to be the problem that perhaps some of the industry had predicted in the run-up to 2020? I think in our last discussion, we spoke about there was probably some little slight opacity about, you know, if you did run into non-available fuel or little fuel non-availability um, whether you should move to another port or whether this would count as deviating from a voyage, which I think you are not necessarily quite required to do. Certainly looking at the GSIS information on the IMO's website, the number of phonars does look to be falling. Then again, these numbers are you know, purely reliant on individual vessel reporting. So um, I wonder, Beth, is, is that something you would like to comment on? Are you seeing the use of phonars and clarity on how they should be used? Um, yes, I mean, I think there's still a lack of clarity, like a common understanding of when and how a phonar ought to be used. And it is a question that owners do raise constantly, particularly, and I think it becomes very difficult to give practical advice, let alone any legal advice where the, the issue is a, a perhaps a marginal uh, sulfur problem. So b- below the 0.53% uh, mass by mass, but over the 0.50 mass by mass. I had a situation recently with a vessel heading towards the States with suspected fuel within that region. And the question was, should they be issuing a phonar? The local US lawyer said yes, absolutely. And my view was, oh, I'm not so sure about that. And certainly from a UK point of view, I didn't feel that the phonar itself was appropriate in that situation because it's not a question of there being no fuel available. They've bought and, and the BDN shows that it's appropriate fuel on board, but there is a concern. So I think there are and, and will be for a while some grey areas about when a phonar should be used um, and when it shouldn't be used and, and the risks that are run if, if you're kind of overly using a phonar and perhaps when uh, one doesn't need to. So time will tell and certainly the more used the market becomes to using phonars if they need to, the more guidance we'll be able to, to practically give. Okay. And last, Robert, are you hearing maybe anecdotal evidence from 
from ship owners that's about the use of phonars and uh, you know what's happening to them when they they find themselves placed in that situation uh, no we are not hearing a lot to be honest and i think the uh, the evidence of the uh, gcs database from imo proves that phonar is not a big issue uh, because non-availability is not a big issue. Uh, the question uh, which Beth just uh, highlighted here is what is the applicability of using phonars if you have bunkered what uh, is compliant fuel because you, uh, first of all, you ordered compliant fuel and you got fuel with a valid compliant bunker delivery node. Then you are legally compliant. Uh, and the whole business of uh, testing uh, your commercial samples is purely a commercial issue. It's not a statutory issue. It's not a compliance issue to test your, your samples. Um, so if, if your commercial samples fall within uh, the uh, gray area of the uh, ISO 4259 standard on interpretation of single test results, then you are, as an owner, in good faith to regard your bunker delivery node as compliant because... What else could you possibly do? And, and that's why, as Beth say, you know, when you have these gray area issues, these are always the result of a test of a commercial sample that is not a control sample uh, under the Marple Convention. So it's not about compliance. You might have an issue with the bunker supplier you want to chase, um, and, and you might be able to receive a, a bit of money back because, you know, it, it might be, you know, marginally around uh, or just about the limit. But it's not from a statutory perspective uh, an issue uh, or should not be. It should only be a statutory issue if your marble sample proves to be non-compliant. And there are guidelines from IMO how to interpret that result. And there are actually also guidelines from IMO how to interpret the commercial sample results or the results of an in-use sample taken by port state control while in port. And there, the recommendation is you use ISO 4259 and the gray area uh, around the limit to state whether you are compliant or not. So I think we should actually not have that much uh, of confusion out there. Uh, it's about applying the guidelines by IMO in a proper way. The U.S. situation is different. Because U.S. have their own regulation, they have their own phonar, they have their own established set of guidelines on how to use phonar, which is slightly different from the IMO uh, general guidelines. Uh, so, so we should be careful not to mix that up. On the other hand, being non-compliant in the U.S., we have to remember that's within an ECA area and in use in an ECA area is a 0.1% issue. It's not the 0.5% issue. So, so there is also a subtle difference around the whole non-compliant situation for ships coming to the US or any other ECA area for that mm -hmm. matter. Okay. And perhaps now we can move the discussion on to look at how the current uh, coronavirus pandemic is impacting on shipping port operations and the fuel supply chain. So maybe we can start by looking at how current port restrictions are impacting on bunker deliveries uh, in terms of fuel sampling and spare activities. Cowan, would you like to kick this discussion off and, and have a bit of a look about what's happening in terms of tougher port restrictions? Sure, Leslie. In all the fuel location we supply, uh, the watch crews are at the front end of our operations. And, and since the outbreak, we have been looking to safeguard both our barge operators and receiving vessel crew. So this mainly highlights changes that we have put in place to reflect social distancing and the practicalities associated with these. 
It also means limiting face-to-face -face contact or restricting access to the crew house, as well as you know, leveraging a more digital approach versus the more traditional paper and stamp method. Fuel sampling is still critical and is still continuing, but we have seen fewer sur surveyors on board. The key here is to use a trusted supplier, and we continue to roll out mass flow metering system on our barges in ARA and France so to increase the levels of transparency uh, to, to much higher level, even with no face-to-face -face contact. Okay. Um, Mads, can I bring you in here? At TK, what are you seeing in terms of uh, the surveys, field sampling, and is it extending operational time to process time for these activities at birth? Uh on the whole, um, sampling isn't really a, a huge issue for us, as our crew can do it, and obviously they're tankers, so they're quite um, familiar with that setup. But on the whole, I think surveyors uh, generally can't get always access to the ships now because they won't be let off by the uh, by the port authority if they've gone onto a ship that might um, might have been to an area or had a crew member that's been exposed to uh, COVID-19. And uh, so it might be that the surveyor can only go onto the barge to measure the, um, the bunker quantity there. But we've also seen some suppliers that won't let surveyors onto the barges as well. So it, it really is dependent on the, the region and the port. Although I would like to caveat that with, on the whole, it seems to be working okay. We haven't had any major issues in terms of quantity disputes or anything like that. So it seems to be working well, even with the restrictions. The other aspect I think mentioning on that is landing of bunker samples and obviously getting them to be tested at the labs before the quality time bar expires. And there's some areas of the world where that may be a challenge, such as West Africa, where deliveries are offshore and things like that. But apart from those challenges, it's it's worked pretty well, I've got to say. Okay. Douglas, would you have anything to add on this? Yeah, thanks, Leslie. Uh, I would concur, actually, with the previous um, assessments of the situation. For us, surveyors in Singapore, we will we are still seen as an essential service. So, by and large, we can still carry our bunker quantity surveys. But there are some countries where it's more restricted, where bunker surveying is not necessarily seen as an essential service. But overall things seem to be working okay and uh, to the point of bunker quantity disputes we haven't really encountered severe quantity disputes ourselves in the last uh, couple of months and certainly also not the last couple of weeks. Okay and then bunker prices have collapsed in recent weeks and they may fall even more as oil prices head further south over the course of the year and I just wondered how this sudden dramatic fall in bunker prices is impacting on fuel purchasing strategies. You know, obviously many owners and operators will be locked into contracts. So I'm just wondering, are we seeing more spot purchases? What are we seeing in terms of hedging? Um, is it causing owners and operators to maybe rethink where they lift bunkers? I know we're kind of all making it up as we go along at the moment, but uh, is it impacting on those buying strategies? Perhaps I can throw that question to you, Mads, first of all. Thanks, Leslie. Um, yes, uh, I would definitely say that um, certainly our buying strategy has changed. If we look back sort of almost a year ago when we sort of started um, the, the process of looking at where to contract and, and quantities and suppliers and all that sort of stuff, we were concerned with quality of supply, uh, security of supply, uh, trusted suppliers, 
uh, and of course price. And the volatility that we saw at the end of last year and into the beginning of this year in terms of price, our contracts generally helped to to make that more manageable uh, and make our pricing slightly more attractive than the spot market. But then as we've come into the new year, we've seen, you know, the the supply side issues have obviously uh, disappeared due to the lack of demand with the virus. So from our perspective now, we are much more comfortable proceeding on, on a spot basis than, than contracts. We probably still will keep a contract in, in Singapore, which is our biggest uh, bunker hub. But generally, apart from that, we're not seeing availability issues Pricing-wise, spot and contract prices are generally uh, quite close together now, whereas they weren't before last year. So in those terms, um, and also other factors like, you know, owners might time charter ships out, so they might be buying less bunkers, all these sort of factors uh, in the current market uh, mean that I think spot is definitely, um, f- uh, certainly for us as well as a spot tanker operator is, is the way to go. Okay. Is that something that you're hearing as well, Lars Robert, from owners? That they're kind of maybe looking to revise fuel purchasing strategies, at least in the very, very near term. Um, to be perfectly honest, we actually do not have very much information about the strategies for the individual members. So I would actually resort to what uh, what Matt's just said and basically also uh, apply a bit of logic to the situation. And I think the situation calls for, yeah, definitely a change in, in strategy and, and uh, things are, are not as critical as they were half a year ago. So this is a change and, and I'm sure the change is being utilized the best way possible by those uh, who are in the market to, to buy fuel. Mm-hmm. And then maybe we can uh, move on to look at um, the appetite for high sulfur fuel oil at the moment for those scrubber equipped vessels. I just wonder, given current price spreads between high and low sulfur fuels, whether that business case for scrubbers is really looking very unconvincing. I think we have already heard there'll be some, um, as you know, as owners uh, bring out their Q1 results, that there have been some installation postponements, uh, not necessarily cancellations. But do you think we may see cancellations going forwards and certainly a dearth of new orders? Lars Robert, would you like to go first with that one? Uh, yes, thank you. Um, uh, we definitely have seen, and I think this depends also a little bit in the sector, we have seen some cancellations, we've seen some people uh, deferring installations because, you know, suddenly within their sector, for example, tankers, there was really a need to get out there and, and do the business rather than sitting in a queue waiting for uh, for installation at a yard. I think adding to this uh, situation was also the fact that some yards, they have had oversold their capacity or ability to install scrubbers within the the agreed time frame. So there was actually some queuing up. Uh, That queuing up was okay when the market was bad and uh, with overcapacity in the market. But when suddenly things changes and, and you can see that, hey, the market is booming and yeah, then you put your uh, scrubber or you, you make it stay on the shelf for a while. Um, if you are in the market to make a decision right now, whether you should purchase a scrubber or not, I think the uh, it's not such a compelling calculation you're uh, confronted with. It's not a compelling argument to install a scrubber right now with the current prices. But then again, scrubber installations uh, are not done uh, on on spot prices. Uh, They are done on your expectations for the market, uh, you know, for some years. And I think we have to be careful not to overinterpret the the current situation. But then again, you know, there's also a bit of uh, game and luck in the whole thing, uh, what you want to, to bet on. I think it's down to commercial decisions at the individual uh, situation and the market determines uh, 
what, what needs to be done. And perhaps we can now maybe look at the, the kind of bigger picture for oil. Obviously, a supply and demand is way out of kilter at the moment, so, and we have a massive overproduction of oil. Clearly, OPEC members are, are taking steps to cut back production on their members. But also, I just wonder whether what actions we may be seeing refiners begin to take. You know, we hear reports that refineries are cutting back on, on production, shutdowns, potential shutdowns. And maybe we may be seeing some um, postponement of facility upgrades, possibly to produce low sulfur fuel oil. I just wonder, Cowan, if you can give us a little snapshot on the thought process that refiners are, are going to be going through at the moment. Certainly, Leslie. I think what we are potentially trying to do here and assess is the 600 or odd uh, refineries around the world. But what's really critical is to remember that a barrel of crude oil produces a host of other products, you know, including gasoline, jet fuels, industrial chemicals, just to name a few. Not just only the marine fuels that takes a lot of focus here in the discussion. These are indeed difficult times and we face two challenges, a global pandemic and a commodity price collapse. So you're right that we are beginning to hear more announcements of refiners stopping production or running at half rate. So all of us are definitely impacted by these changes and we are already starting to look at making operational adjustments. One example is where we reconfigure one of our operations in U.S. to produce hand sanitizer, which we supply to some of the hardest hit states in the country. So the key here is for the refiners to try to maintain a strong position. And I think everyone will be taking steps to address the downturn in an oversupply market and weak demand. And we need to remain flexible and agile to continue to meet the customer's demand now and in the future. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Karen. And then if we can move on to looking at bunker demand and how that might be adversely impacted by COVID-19. Obviously, we've seen some vessel segments, particularly the, the cruise and the ferry sectors, their businesses are, are pretty pretty decimated at the moment. And other segments such as VLCs, LR2s, they're finding additional employment as floating storage. So I know it's very early days and very difficult to make any firm predictions, but I just wondered how much of a hit bunker demand has taken so far and how it may find a way out of it throughout the course of the year. Lars Roberts, we've heard some reports saying bunker demand is down 8%, 10% year on year. What's your view on this at the moment? Well, I, I don't think we have any uh, very clear picture right now, but, but we know from history that there is a close correlation between economic activity in, in the world and uh, transport demand. And because economic activity is going down, logically, transport demand goes down because that's what has happened in the past and it's very likely to happen also in this situation. But we also have to keep in mind here, and you mentioned floating storage, but floating storage is good for, for the tanker segment. It doesn't help much drive bunker demand up because the ship sitting still on, on anchorage with tanks full of oil in, in contrast to being empty doesn't really... Uh, cause a lot of bunker demand. So I think that there is definitely a lot of the uh, demand within the oil sector. And that really means that uh, the transport of crude will go down uh, in a similar manner. So, so yes, there is a drop in, in bunker demand. That drop is bound to follow the transport demand. And whenever the economy picks up, there will be a bounce back. Will it be slow, medium, fast, whatever? Time will show. Uh, I'm not uh, able to predict that. We've got a market in deep contango. We've, we've got some analysts suggesting that land-based storage could actually peak mid-year. 
Um, hence, we're seeing the shift to, to floating storage, floating storage for purely, you know, operational regions. The oil has to go somewhere. Others are using floating storage to play a longer game, perhaps. And, um, you know, can those very high charter rates that we're seeing be sustained and for how long? I think there is one big observation that needs to be considered with flow storage, and that really is that um, storing products over an extended period of time requires tender loving care of the cargo or fuel that might be stored, because if you don't do that, you might actually impact your cargo value over time when fuel or refined oil products get degraded, uh, which for each product type has a different scenario driven behind it. So regular testing, good maintenance on board the storage facilities are absolutely critical to maintain uh, product quality and therefore cargo prices at the time in the future that the product will change hands. That's a good point. Um, Are you seeing more requests from owners operators for kind of advice on vessel layup? Yes, we do get uh, inquiries regarding that, moored storage, um, what does it entail, what impact does it have on class regulations, inspections, etc. In Singapore, quite interesting, if you go to the East Coast, typically on any single day, you'd have 30 tankers or so idling. Now it's 60, so we've seen an increase of about 40 to 50 percent of extra vessels and tankers off the coast of Singapore, basically filled with product, uh, laying idle, waiting for orders, uh, waiting for discharge, etc. So it's it's quite a dynamic market, I would suggest, for the tanker operators at the moment. And perhaps you can switch to, to look at legal implications of the, of the impact of COVID-19 on, on shipping, on contracts, on the charter party agreements. Beth, if I can bring call on your expertise here, people have mentioned the use of force majeure in contracts, certainly um, how that relates to falling oil prices and fuel availability. Um, and I just wonder, you know, there's kind of in a way a lot of mixed messages about force majeure. It seems a term that people have latched onto in this current situation, not surprisingly. So I just wondered if you could perhaps offer a little clarity um, on how we should approach that issue. Thank you, Leslie. Um, well, I'll, I'll start with force majeure because it has been over the last couple of months the, the kind of headline issue, particularly in the marine sector, as the epidemic, to begin with the epidemic in, in China, started to spread across uh, until eventually dec- becoming declared as a pandemic. Everybody reached for force majeure. It is one of those uh, clauses and a, a phrase which is often quite badly misunderstood. So just a couple of very boring legal points. Force majeure isn't a concept that is is an English law concept. Uh, Other jurisdictions, France, for example, do have a general body of law for force majeure. But with an English law contract, if you want to rely on force majeure, you need to have a clause within your contract that deals with force majeure situations. And in order to be effective, that clause, or particularly with the the COVID-19, you need to bring the facts within the clause that you've got in your contract because it will be very strictly interpreted because it acts effectively as an exclusion clause. So it relieves a party of their obligation to perform. 
most of the contracts, certainly that I have seen at, over the past couple of months as COVID-19 has taken hold, where there are force majeure clauses, they haven't been worded in a way that really meets the kind of issues which are coming out of or being provoked by COVID-19. The kind of bog standard force majeure clause um, tends to deal with kind of historically comes out of the, the kind of insurance risks. So in a, in a sense, it's, it's not particularly apt um, because it's quite it addresses relatively old issues um, and they're not very well equipped to deal with what we have here, which is a rolling pandemic where different parts of the world are being affected in, in very different ways. So force majeure is, is very difficult, very complicated, and very factually sensitive. And it has been not easy to, or at least I've not yet seen a declaration of force majeure that I think has, has worked well given the background facts and the particular word in over the last couple of months. So force majeure is a term of art that people have raced to. It's, as I said, it's quite misunderstood. Uh, it's very, very difficult to rely on it successfully, even if you've got a fantastically worded clause that, that meets the types of factual situations that have been occurring over the last few months. The alternative, as a matter of English law, if you don't have anything else in your contract, is to seek to rely on the doctrine of frustration. Um, and again, that is very, very difficult to prove because you have to essentially show that something has happened that has altered the contractual bargain that you have entered into uh, fundamentally. So it doesn't really apply just because the, the kind of financial, the profit aspect of that bargain has changed. It's something much more fundamental than simply that you're not making as much money or you're losing more money than you anticipated. Um, so those have been the two main things that people have looked at, force majeure and, and if the force majeure clause, if, if it's there or if it doesn't exist, if it doesn't apply then to look at frustration. We have, of course, at Hill Dickinson in the Marine Group spent a lot of time over the past couple of months advising clients on wording. So not just existing wording where they are concerned that they that they may be having a problem as a result of lengthy delays or, or indications from their counterparty that they do not want to perform because of the prospect of lengthy delays. Uh, but we've also been advising extensively on new contract wording to try and meet the concerns of our clients, whether they're in the shipping sector or the trading sector or, in, or indeed insurers what wording might they need to address pandemics like COVID-19, not just this year, but for the future. And it is interesting work, but also relatively complicated because the issues which COVID-19 are presenting are quite varied. Um, and to come up with a comprehensible clause or a comprehensive clause would, would run to many, many pages and, and become quite commercially unattractive. So there are challenges around trying to adapt wording to make sure that everybody's contracts, as far as possible, remain in alignment with with the kind of the factual implications of pandemics such as COVID-19. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, Beth. Obviously, it's a, an unfolding story. And so, you know, how things like contracts can adapt and encompass the situations that stands is, you know, I can, I can imagine a very, as, as you say, a very complicated uh, process. Um, and I just wonder, you know, maybe as we bring this discussion to a close, whether we can look at the issue of credit and a credit squeeze Pre this year, um, many people had uh, predicted that ship owners and operators would be asking for extended credit terms and longer payment periods to accommodate the challenge of higher fuel prices 
and that also traders would be asking for more credit from their lenders to provide much needed liquidity to the market. To a very large all that's now being turned on its head. And I just wonder, as we see vessel segments being very severely um, hit and owners and operators lay up vessels, do you think we're going to see credit issues evolve for very unexpectedly different reasons and possibly even a spate of bankruptcies leading on from that? Mads, I wonder if you'd like to pick this discussion off. Yes, when we where we were at the end of last year, um, where crude was and where VLSFO prices were, and obviously the, the increased amount owners and chargers were having to spend on bunkers when the VLSFO came in, you would think that credit lines were going to be squeezed. I think a lot of the bunker traders um, got involved in credit facilities, etc., to deal with this. But then obviously, since COVID's come in, oil prices collapsed. So the credit line squeeze has uh, has been reduced a little because the price of the bunkers is um, probably about a third of what it was not so long ago. But yeah, I think there's certain shipping segments that, uh, that certainly will be struggling with credit and others that won't. But it'll be interesting to see if, if prices do increase over the next six months, how they that affects things. But I think at the moment, uh, certainly from what I can see in uh, in our shipping segment, things are things are okay at the moment. Okay. And, and last, Robert, perhaps you'd like to bring the discussion to a conclusion by looking at that credit issue and, and what you're seeing amongst donors. Uh, well, first of all, I think as Matt just said, the collapse of the oil price and the uh, subsequent fall in bunker prices really removed that crunch in terms of do we have enough liquidity or credit out in the market to really sustain the way we do bunkering of ships uh, in the big picture. What is probably more the question now is the credit lines to the individual uh, fuel buyers where the, the individual sellers in the market, the, the fuel suppliers, they probably need to be careful on uh, and probably are careful on uh, how they extend credit to their customers. And, and you know, the, these are, I would say, normal uh, operating procedures in the market. And, and I don't really uh, see that the market is really that much different from it was last year. It's just a different product we use now. Uh, but the, the price collapse have really changed this issue from being the big issue to being a normal issue, I would say. Yes, it's, uh, we're certainly in an uncharted territory at the moment. But I think probably what we can take from this discussion is that, you know, by and large, IMO 2020 has worked pretty well. We've made the transition um, and everything seems to be operating as well as it can do, obviously, given the uncertain times we're in at the moment. But uh, it's an evolving picture. Things are changing day by day. But I'd just like to thank you all very much for your input and insights. And, uh, you know, perhaps we can pick up this discussion later in the year when uh, hopefully things will have settled down and the world of shipping begins to move again on more normal terms. But thank you very much for your input today.